G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. You might recall when you read the Scriptures that before the Apostle Paul had his encounter on the Damascus Road, there was a significant work that he was doing. He was trying to silence and do away with the rise of Christianity. Well, as you know, Israel is its own nation and there is dramatic work that goes on between Christians and the nation of Israel and oftentimes it's reaching out to Jewish people. But there's something of an uprising against some of the Christian activity that's going on in Israel. Let's get some insights. Dr. Camille Majdali is in Jerusalem right now. In fact, he's just near what is called the Jaffa Gate and the New Gate. And uh, he's talking to us from Jerusalem. Hello, Camille. Welcome back to 2020. Hi, Neil. Good to hear your voice. <laughs> Camille. Halfway I, around the world. Yes. I don't know whether uh, I've uh, set the scene there uh, by talking about what we might read about in the scriptures as opposition to Christianity, but is that something similar to what might be going on now with some very zealous Jews trying to, uh, to uh, inhibit the growth of Christianity in Israel? The uh, Jerusalem was called by Jesus himself the city that stoned the prophets. And, of course, what happened in the book of Acts is they went from stoning prophets to stoning apostles or, or killing apostles like Stephen in Acts 7 or James, the brother of John, in Acts 12. Now, I mean, it's not come to that point. Hope to God it never does. But this is a this is a very westernized society, and they do have, how should we say it, they have a strong element of freedom of speech, which is important, because if you don't have freedom of speech, all other freedoms are going to be curtailed or non-existent. So that means you have freedom of speech to share the gospel, and you have freedom of speech to oppose the gospel. So uh, the fact is, yeah, I mean, and tourists and, and pilgrims come, and they, they have their freedom of speech, too. I, I saw a photo, I didn't see them in person, but of, I think, a Korean couple. And they, you know, they're on tour, or they're at least having their own tour, and they're holding up placards telling the country to repent. And basically, the authorities let them do what they want, because, well, you know, they're just visiting and what have you. So that's a refreshing change from what happens in the rest of the Middle East, where there is not the freedom of speech that we enjoy so much in Australia and the Western world. Of course, when we think of Christians in Israel, most of them are there because they're on some sort of a tour. And you yourself lead uh, fabulous tours into Israel. And so no doubt the Israeli government appreciates those tourism dollars coming in. But there would be those who are, uh, who are opposed to, uh, to some of the gatherings of uh, people who are Jewish who have converted to Christianity. Is that the main concern? It's not so much the tourists? 
Well, I guess it varies. The the tourists are welcomed by everybody, including those that don't like Christianity, don't like Christians. One group in particular, Yad Lachim. If I'm, I'm, I hope I don't get this right. They they are anti missionary group. They want to oppose evangelism of Jews and all that. They apparently post the service times of messianic groups, of which there's at least 150 congregations in this country, and that's an amazing growth in the last few years. So they'll post those on their website, and they'll they may protest outside places where these people are meeting. And technically, they're allowed to do that. That's part of the freedom of assembly, freedom of speech. But I think even that group are happy with people coming in on tour because, of course, it's good for the economy, and, of course, these people leave. They're not hanging around to uh, spread the good news kind of thing. So it really does vary, Neil. But as a whole, Israeli society is a dynamic thing, and there's been a lot of changes that I've seen over the years that, uh, let me put it this way, one rabbi said, you know, we, we're becoming comfortable with the faith of Jesus, meaning what Jesus believed, although we're still uncomfortable with faith in Jesus. So that's a rather amazing statement. Enlarge a little for us here, Camille, because once you convert to Christianity as a Jew, uh, there are those that would see you as no longer Jewish. So uh, there is a, a caution there uh, that no doubt is flagged uh, very highly uh, by Jewish communities. Uh, how does that work? Okay, it's, uh, there's putting aside anything to do with the Christian faith. There's been a debate in this country about who's a Jew, which sounds really funny, who's a Jew. You would think that would be really obvious, but... It's not as obvious as it sounds because they have to be able to prove bloodlines and ancestors and whatever else. Then add the Christian mix to it. The thing, the thing is, in Israel, there is what is called the law of return. That is basically anyone that is Jewish, or at least has a Jewish mother, can migrate to Israel and become a citizen. That is the law of return. That is the raison d'etre of the Jewish state, to ingather the exiles. But back in 1989, the Israeli Supreme Court made a ruling that any Jew, if, 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 the, if the Jewish person was not religious, or they were an atheist, or they were Hare Krishna, it didn't matter, they're still a Jew, they can come in on the law of return. But the Supreme Court in 1989 ruled that if you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, you are not Jewish or not Jewish enough to qualify for the law of return. Obviously a very, very controversial statement and ruling. That was in 1989, and all we know is since that ruling, the Messianic community in this country has uh, has grown. <laughs> 150 congregations, uh, 15,000 minimum so I, it's, it's, a, it's very complicated and contradictory, as often things in the Middle East. But that's where it stands, as I understand. Okay, so ordinary tourists are generally quite safe. But as you might expect, there is some 
tension that's bubbling under the surface when it comes to uh, who's in which camp and uh, whether you're Jewish or whether you're Messianic Christian. And uh, if you do convert from Judaism, uh, then uh, there are some ramifications that you'd suffer if you're converting to Christianity. You've been travelling a lot, Camille. We're talking to you today from Jerusalem, but uh, just recently you were in the UK. Uh, you were there when the election uh, took place. Yes, I, I was. And can I just say, like Australia, UK election campaigns are mercifully short, not like the protracted guerrilla war of US presidential campaigns that go on for 18 to 20 months. However, this particular campaign uh, was rather remarkable because I never saw a campaign flyer, a poster, anywhere where I was staying in North Oxfordshire. Now, someone said, oh, well, it's because this, this part of the country is, uh, this county even, has stayed with one political party for 100 years, so, like, why bother? Uh, I, even the BBC reading the daily news on on my iPhone, I didn't really see much of anything about this campaign. I found it most unusual, to say the least. And then, of course, when the results came in, what happened is it was interpreted as a disaster. That's the term, disaster, for the ruling Conservative Party, known as the Tories, and for Prime Minister Theresa May. Now, on the surface, it does look disastrous, because she went into the election, you know, three years early kind of thing. She, she had a majority in the British Parliament, Theresa May and the Conservatives, and she was wanting her own personal mandate, elected in her own right, with more in the majority, because they were like, I can't remember, 20% ahead of the polls or something like that when they started off. And she ends up with a hung parliament. So she actually loses seats. Not a lot, but the point is she lost her majority. The majority they got in 2015 was barely over the line. Well, she lost that, and now she has to go into coalition with a very conservative Northern Irish party, the DUP. And so now she's, she's got what we call a hung parliament, something Australia has every now and again. So it was viewed as not just a disaster for Theresa May, but it was viewed as a vindication for the British Labour Party leader, Jeremy Corbyn, who's, from what we can tell, he's an out-and-out Marxist. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, it, it wasn't what anyone was expecting. However, Neil, the point is, it's Theresa May that's going to be Prime Minister, not Jeremy Corbyn, and Theresa May is going to continue her campaign to bring in Brexit. Camille, stay with us. We'll get some more insights into what's happening in the UK in just a few moments. Uh, Just to mention that the Understanding the Times tour is ready to kick off in August, runs through till mid-September. Of course, there's a Holy Land tour later in the year, too, that Dr Camille Majdali will be leading. That's in November. The website is tan.org.au. That stands for Teach All Nations, tan.org.au. We're back to talk some more about the UK in just a few moments.
Taking a little time out to get some insights into those global issues that are bubbling along and uh, the man who is an expert when it comes to trends that are going on around the world and we look to for some good commentary on these things, Dr Camille Majdali from Teach All Nations and Camille is with us so we're on the line with him from Jerusalem today. Camille, you were just recently in the UK. You were there when the elections were on and it looks as though uh, with a minority government, the Tories will be governing with this other party called the Democratic Unionist Party. Now, as I understand it, Camille, uh, this is quite a conservative and uh, even a party with some uh, pretty strong Christian foundations. How is that likely to play out with a a coalition-style arrangement? Very good question, Neil. I'll do the best to explain what I know, and I'm still learning myself about all this. I didn't even know that DUP existed until after the election, because I knew Theresa May had lost her majority, and I was thinking, who could she team up with? Because the parties I'm aware of were all left of center parties that they would have nothing in common, and yet... uh, I was told there is this one party from Northern Ireland, DUP, she could have coalition with, and and indeed that appears what's going to happen. What I know of it, and it's not a lot, they were founded by the late Ian Paisley, who was an ordained Christian minister, gospel preacher, but also highly political active, especially during the time of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. I might just say, this year I went to Northern Ireland to Belfast for the second time. I went last year, and they are among the nicest people I have ever met. And they also are probably the most Christian enclave I've seen in the UK. DUP would be pro-marriage, they'd be anti-abortion, they'd be all this kind of thing. So from a classic Christian conservative view, they would be Well, they'd be like some of our minor Christian parties in Australia, I would say. But the interesting thing is that, and I don't, I read it from a guy called Peter Hitchens, who is Christian. He was the brother of the militant late atheist Christopher Hitchens, who wrote a book called God is Not Great. Now, Peter Hitchens, he writes opinion columns and all this kind of thing. He said that the Conservative Party today in Britain doesn't really have at its head a true classic conservative, whereas the DUP is classic, old-fashioned conservative. So it's interesting to have that mix in. They only have 10 seats, and I think, I can't remember, uh, Theresa may have have 318 seats, but she needs them to form her majority. So they could end up having a disproportionate amount of influence, of conservative influence, compared to their numbers. The the same thing happens in Israel, by the way. Israel, every single election is a hung parliament, without exception, every single election. And so the prime minister has to go into coalition with all kinds of groups. And with the current government, of course, they go into coalition with conservative groups, religious groups, and they, they do of course, want their pound of flesh to be part of the coalition government. At least for Theresa May, it's just one group she has to deal with, and the values they have are not terribly far off from the values that she personally might have, let alone the Tories. 
Camille, share a thought or two that you might have with regard to the hand of God in the UK election, because I've heard it being discussed that what will come out of the Tories losing their majority may actually be something that is very positive for the UK insofar as this influence that comes from the Conservative DUP. Any thoughts on the hand of God at work in the UK? Sure. I'm... When when the Tories won the election two years ago, that would have been like the hand of God. I, I don't want to... I'm always careful, Neil, to not make God look like a politician or that he he's, a, you know, like liberal national coalition or ALP or anything like that, because God is above politics. Kind of like the monarch is above politics, the sovereign of the universe is too. He's not coming to take sides, but take over. There was a lot of prayer in 2015, because uh, I won't go into all the details, but the Scottish Nationalist Party, led by Nicola Sturgeon, they are, of course, wanting not just Scottish Nationalists, they're wanting Scottish independence, and they have a very strong hold in Scotland and in the UK Parliament. In fact, they practically decimated the left-wing Labour Party in Scotland in the, in the 2015 election, they lost a third of their seats in this current election, which might take the wind out of the sails of Scottish independence movement. I have, you know, can I just say, we all know that Scotland is a nation in its own right. We know the Scots are a distinct people, but they work together with the English, the Welsh, you know, the, the Irish to make outstanding contributions to the world. And independence for them is not necessary to affirm their identity. I I feel that it's really important to understand that. So 2015, as well as the referendum for Scottish independence 2014, there was a lot of prayer over that. And was there a lot of prayer over this election? I believe there was. There's two ways to look at it. Mr. Corbyn, who is, yeah, he not only is deemed as Marxist, he would make Bernie Sanders look mainstream in comparison. And he, uh, he did very well because he had the charisma. He talked to young people. He promised free everything. And he, he also was, uh, how should you say, he didn't bitterly attack his opponents. He was very gracious in that sense. So he, he, he came out looking good. Now, remember, this is a guy that was deemed unelectable because he's so far to the left. Some people think, oh, he's, he's been promoted, he's, he's, he'll be prime minister next. But I don't know. It may just be, all right? And again, not because God is one political party for one and against the other, but the Scottish Nationalist Party, which in some ways could be even more left of center than the Labour they lost. Therefore, that means perhaps that the push by these elite for Scottish independence may be postponed indefinitely. The second thing is that Brexit, and that's the really important issue here. Brexit is not just about Britain being in the EU. It has to do with Britain's borders. It has to do with Britain's economy. It has to do also with the spiritual side, because the EU is becoming so neo-pagan, and you know Europa is everything now here, 
on coins, banknotes, stamps, magazine covers. What's going to happen to the Brexit negotiations because Theresa May lost her majority? Well, with the DUP, she, she's got real allies for Brexit. So the issue in Britain, I'll keep it short here. They talk about hard Brexit. They talk about soft Brexit. It almost sounds like hard-boiled egg, soft-boiled egg. But what I understand is hard Brexit is where they completely leave customs unions and the single, single market and all this, whereas the soft Brexit is they still have some of a linkage to Europe. And I cannot comment which is the best thing, except that it may be, all right, and I'm saying maybe, that with the DUP, who are probably more zealous for Brexit than many of the Conservative Party, the Tories, it could push for the harder Brexit. It seems to me if you're going to get divorced, and not that I advocate divorce in people's marriages, but there are divorces like this one with Britain and the EU, if you're going to do it, do it clean, do it properly, but keep the linkage. And interesting, Angela Merkel, the German Chancellor, after this UK election, she made a statement. Britain will continue to negotiate. They will get their Brexit. They will still be part of Europe in the sense that, you know, we'll always be neighbors, we'll always cooperate together. And I thought that was rather interesting. Far from the apocalyptic claims coming out of Britain, oh, it's going to derail Brexit. Merkel saying it's not going to do anything of the kind. Brexit is it's going to happen. Well, Camille, we've run out of time on this update, but always good, refreshing and enlightening to get your insights into what's happening. And uh, on the phone with you today from Jerusalem, just recently in the UK, uh, looking forward to the Understanding the Times tour coming up in August and through September across four states in Australia. You've got your Holy Land tour coming up at the end of the year in November. I'll point people to your website, teachallnations.org.au. That's tan.org.au. And uh, some good resources on there too. And get on to Camille's mailing to keep up to date with some of these global trends. Uh, Camille, thanks so much for being with us again today on 2020. Thank you, Neil. God bless. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.